I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1974, also 1982. The albums, Buck, Buffalo, and Feed and Mingle with Live Indians. The artists are Williams and Ree. My guest this week is Cliff Nesteroff. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, man. How are you? I am delighted to have you back. We're here specifically to promote a book called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy. Figure I should give it the full title. Um, let's talk about this. I have been interested in Native, Native comedy for a long time, and uh, I'm just so happy that you, you gave me the thickest primer possible on the subject. So tell me why you got interested in it first. Well... <clears throat> I live in uh, Hollywood, California, but I'm originally from uh, Canada. And in mm -hmm. Canada, First Nations issues are front page news every day, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to California, I noticed, noticed that Native American issues are never front page news here, or very rarely. It took about five years, four or five years after I moved here, for Standing Rock to become a national uh, news story. And that was the first time since I lived here that there really was attention being paid to uh, indigenous concerns, native protest, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think things are changing a little bit since Standing Rock in terms of awareness, at least among young people sure. in America, not so much among older people. When I told people what I was working on, this new book about indigenous peoples in comedy, people that were like 50 and over just couldn't grasp what I was doing or why. And it just mystified them. But people that were in their 20s immediately grasped it and were on board. So I think there was a bit of a generational divide. But if you look at major Canadian media, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, CBC, go to their websites and you look at the top of the page. They have tabs for each genre of news. So hmm. it'll be Canadian news, international news, sports, business Indigenous. There's always an indigenous tab. Awesome. And okay. CBC employs, I think, over 100 different indigenous journalists. How many does CNN employ? How many does NBC or the New York Times or the LA Times employ? I don't know. I don't. Yeah. It's probably zero, maybe one, you know, or, mm -hmm. or they, they'll hire a freelancer to do an editorial about Standing Rock or something sure, like that. Yeah. But it's very absent. So. In America, where race is always being discussed and where um, in Hollywood, where the phrase diversity is ever, always being used, it just seems strange to me coming from a place where indigenous issues were in your face to a place where uh, indigenous issues were erased completely. So that yeah. was in a small way part of the motivation of doing this book. I mean, there's, there's, I think, an active, it's active. It's an active attempt at erasure that, you know, it, it, hey, if we don't talk about them, eventually we won't have to admit our country's biggest shame. And it's sad. It's pathetic. It's, it's, it, it then denies that these people who are forced to be put onto certain lands, forced to be live, live certain lives, are then, you know, we just slowly wipe them out. And, uh, yeah. And the, and the next thing you know, you're doing a podcast and it's a white host and a white guest uh -huh. and no native guests. You know, Big the next thing time. you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm aware. Boy, oh boy. Super fun. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad you wrote the book. You told me because, again, I, I kind of was only able to crack the book today. You told me to concentrate on these two gentlemen. Um so you, your chapters, by the way, do, you know, they're, it's not as though one subject is uh, within a single chapter. How, how, how is the book divided? 
What, what's your thoughts on, on why you divided it the way you did? Well, these are not interesting answers to give because it's it so like... It, I'm interested. Well, it's a publisher thing. The publisher okay. des- decides. The editor told me to read a book called The Unwinding by George Packer, which okay. goes from present to past, present to past, present to past, Okay, where you uh, a number of contemporary characters appear and then disappear and then reappear. Interesting. Um, uh, and so that's how he wanted to structure this book. So it's a combination of history mm-hmm. and also the stories of contemporary Native comedians who are making a go of things uh, today. So the book starts off in the present, then we go back to the past, then back to the present, to the past, to the present, to the past. That's how it's structured. Okay. Um, and it was not like an idea that I was um, had any opinion about one way or the other in terms of structure. When it comes to structuring a book... I defer to the editor because that's what they have done their whole lives. And sure, this is sure. only my my second book, and I really um, am just faking it. You know, I don't really know how to write a book, so <laughs> uh, whatever the editor suggests, unless it's real egregious, I'll be like, yeah, okay, let's try that. So, seems to have worked. People seem to um, appreciate it. But this this record, these two records that I've chosen for your show. Um, are really because they're the only comedy records um, made by anybody that's in this book, any any vinyl LPs, uh, at least. So um, that's why I chose Williams and Ree and told you to read about them so you'd have some context for who they are and, and what these records are. Um, I'm not favoring anybody in the book over anybody else, but these are the dudes who actually put out a comedy LP or three uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, at least self-release the first one at least if not the other ones I I I'm not a hundred percent sure, but at yeah, least the first one yeah they're they're a combination of vanity pressings and basically vanity pressings these are records that they would sell at their gigs which as you know as a comedy record collector was very common and you can always tell which records were sold at somebody's gig because it's somebody you've never heard of mm-hmm. and it's always always autographed right oh, big time so these fall into that category if you were to find a williams and re lp in a thrift store chances are it's going to be autographed right yeah i'm, I'm kind of i i think i have one on the way and i'm hoping it is autographed frankly and and, and 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 those autographs are so uh meaningful to people that you can find them in thrift stores <laughs> all across america <laughs> The worst is when they're personalized, and I then I feel worse. You, you just made this person waste their time and tell you a little story on the, oh, on the sleeve in ballpoint. Oh, brother, tell me about it. My, <laughs> my, my autographed copies of my first book are all over eBay. <laughs> How did you discover Williams and Ree? Was it a simple, came across your <laughs> name in research, or...? No, I've known who Williams and Ree are for a long time. To give your listeners context, they are a comedy team. One mm-hmm. of them is white. One mm-hmm. of them is Native American. And they have been together up. I mean, I, I'm assuming they're still together in the times of the coronavirus. So obviously, nobody's performing, but right. they have been performing live on the road for 52 consecutive years. 5-2. Mm-hmm. That is longer than anybody else in comedy. Like, it's crazy. The Smothers mm-hmm. Brothers are retired. Yeah. Um, Williams and Ree have been doing it since 1968 doing a version of the same act, basically, right to the present day. I learned about them, oh, not quite 20 years ago. Um, There was a cheap DVD collection put out of the very first stand-up comedy series 
ever made. It was called Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop. Mm-hmm. And you can now watch it on Amazon Prime, I think. Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop is from 1978. It mostly played UHF stations around the country. It was syndicated, hosted by Norm Crosby, who was an old Ed Sullivan show comedian. Um, and it showcased new young comedians mostly, um, young in those days. So people like Kevin Nealon and Gary Shandling and Brad Garrett, before any of them were famous, they had their TV debuts as a stand-up comic on this show, Norm Mm -hmm. Crosby's Comedy Shop. Also, some older um, experienced people would do stand-up like uh, Marty Allen and uh, Maury Amsterdam and even the mid-level guys, midway between being old and young, Gary Mule Deer. Anyways, uh, that DVD compilation came out. I rented it back in the days of video stores, and one of the acts on the show was Williams and Ree. And it was a really weird um, performance because it kind of caught me off guard. The thing that they have going for them is not material, Mm -hmm. but chemistry. Yeah, And the key to every great comedy team, whether it's the Marx Brothers or the Kids in the Hall or the Smothers Brothers, is chemistry. Kids in the Hall have this impeccable alchemy when they work together. And the Marx Brothers have this impeccable alchemy when they work together. And the Smothers Brothers have this incredible chemistry when they play off of each other. But if it's just Tommy alone or just Dick alone or just Groucho alone or just Harpo alone or just uh, uh, Kevin McDonald alone, or just Dave Foley on news radio, they're still good. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a magic there that is lost completely. Mm-hmm. Maybe Dick Smothers by himself is not good. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, it's still good. So Williams and Ree have incredible chemistry. And you'd have to if you were on the road together with somebody for 52 years. Sure. Um, and so that was obvious when I saw them on Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop. Their comedy was sort of abstract, Uh, But at that time, they were living in Los Angeles, and they were regular performers at the Comedy Store on the Sunset Strip. And that's uh, how they got that gig. Uh, There was a period where they came in off of the road because they were famous, quote-unquote famous, for playing roadhouses all across Nevada. They would play like Jackpot and Elko and Sparks, all the places that were not Las Vegas or Lake Tahoe. And they would play all over South Dakota and Minnesota, places that people developing at the comedy store never played, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they tried to get on The Tonight Show, so they migrated to um, Los Angeles in 77 with nine years of experience under their belt. Way more than anybody else at the comedy store, David sure. Letterman, Jay Leno. And so they actually really took off when they started doing the comedy store. They were killing all the time and... Their fellow comedians were wondering, like, where did these guys come from? Jeff Altman, who was a comedy store comedian at that time, told me, he goes, yeah, it was like they came out of nowhere. It looked like they had been doing roadhouses in South Dakota for 10 years, which is exactly <laughs> what they had been doing. Um, so that's, that's who Williams and Ree are. And I discovered them from uh, Norm Crosby's comedy shop. And then I think I Googled them. This is way before our, this book was written or conceived and way before my first book uh, the Comedians was written or conceived. I Googled Williams and Ree and was shocked to see a list of dates that they were playing at county fairs mm-hmm. all around North America. They're doing tent shows at noon. They're doing a beer garden at 8 p.m. They're doing a country music festival in rural Saskatchewan. You know, they're still all over playing the road. So 
Um, Williams and Rhea are sort of the answer to the question nobody has asked, which is, what if a struggling comedian never stops struggling? Mm-hmm. You know, what if there isn't that big break that takes you to the next echelon where you become David Letterman, if you become Jay Leno? What if you just remain the comedian you were playing an open mic in 1974? Williams and Rhea are the answer to that. They just kept doing it. And they have done literally tens of thousands of shows. And uh, I respect that. And their chemistry is undeniable. Now, their material, however, (laughs) uh, is, this is how I would phrase it. Their material is not for me. Yeah. And put it that way. Right, because uh, I do respect them, and I don't want to malign them in any way. But they do an old school, old fashioned act, and a lot of their jokes are based on uh, ethnic stereotypes. Which, when they're doing a roadhouse in South Dakota or rural Nevada, was acceptable in the '70s, might still be acceptable in those places today. Sure, but in the greater scheme of show business, would be considered unacceptable, and so. They were never a controversial act. They were just too far under the radar Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. But in recent history, the last five years or so, now when they do live events, um, the younger people in the crowd especially have an immediate aversion (laughs) and and despise it. And they did a show in Saskatchewan, a memorial for a tragic... (laughs) I'm laughing. A memorial for a tragic bus accident. And they were hired as the MCs and they did all this racial sort of racial stereotype material. Mm -hmm. And there had been a racially uh, uh, motivated killing in that town like a few months earlier that resulted in a very um, similar to Trayvon Martin type of court trial with an all white jury and the guy who murdered this indigenous kid gets uh, acquitted and anyways that was a few months earlier than Williams and Ray who whose whole thing is about ethnic stereotypes and Bruce Williams the straight well he's um, they both kind of play off each other one plays straight to the other then one's the comedian they both kind of go back and forth but uh, Bruce Williams often makes fun of his partner Terry Ree in the act Terry Ree who's Native American so he'll do quote unquote Indian jokes. Mm-hmm. So they were doing that just like a couple of years ago at this memorial in Saskatchewan and where racial tensions were high and it created this huge controversy and you know they had to take down all of their social media, not because they had said something offensive on social media, but because everybody was threatening to murder them mm-hmm. because of what they had said at this memorial and it turned into this big thing. And the irony is Never in their 52-year career did they ever get more press <laughs> than when this controversy happened. They were on the front page of the Globe and Mail. There were uh, drive afternoon drive talk shows taking calls about it all, all you know, for an hour and a half and all this stuff. And uh, so I talk about it in the book just by virtue of hanging around so long Mm-hmm. This one-time innocuous, family-friendly, Smothers Brothers-esque act has lived out its welcome to a degree and has mm-hmm. been rejected by a whole new generation. So I find that living example really, really interesting. Oh, the yeah. idea that there's these comedians that have hung around so long that they went from relevant to... Maybe irrelevant is the wrong word. They went from being non-controversial to being controversial without changing anything in their act. I find that interesting. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fascinating to kind of live live under the radar, but also live in this very particular bubble that suits them perfectly, suits their comedy, suits their work, which, I mean, honestly, I just say what you will, I mean, I would have plenty to say if we really wanted to break down the stuff I didn't like, but, uh, you know, say what you will about the, the actual content, it is interesting to see that that stuff, uh, you know, they, they if you want to make money and you can find a way to live inside this bubble, it's fascinating that it lasted that long anyway. Well, they did not make money early on. I mean, sure, yeah. they made a little bit of money, but the the record um, that we mentioned, not Fuck Buffalo, but the second one, which mm-hmm. is called... Feed and Mingle with Live Indians? Yeah, Feed and Mingle. Um, if you listen to that record, uh, they say, well, the Oak Ridge Boys will be out here in just a few minutes, but we're going to warm you guys up. They're opening mm-hmm. for, the o- for the Oak Ridge Boys, a major country music headliner of the early 1980s, the Oak mm-hmm. Ridge Boys. That's when they started making money. Um, they had been hired to open for the Oak Ridge Boys as an emergency replacement. They had been playing Nevada lounges for years and years and years and doing okay. Um, and then whoever was opening for the Oak Ridge Boys, nobody seems to remember who it was, uh, was contracted to do 20 minutes and then you bring on the Oak Ridge Boys. Well, whoever the comedian was did an hour Ran the light, as they would say in today's parlance. They did 40 minutes too long, and the Oak Ridge boys were backstage fuming. So they fired this guy immediately, but they had more shows to do the next night. So they phoned uh, around, and they found this comedy team, Williams and Ray. They were working, like, down the street or the next town over. They came in. They did 20 polished, tight minutes, killed. Oak Ridge boys loved them phoned their agent, said, let's sign these guys to be our permanent opening act, and that's what they became. Once they got hired to open for the Oak Ridge Boys in Vegas, they were getting paid $10,000 a gig. $10,000, well, maybe it wasn't $10,000 a show. I think it was. Maybe it was $10,000 per um, booking. So maybe Oak Ridge Boys are doing two weeks, then you get $10,000 for the two weeks. Right. Um, But they were making, uh, you know, $10,000 per booking, um, at the time that this record was recorded. So they struggled for a long time. They tried to do uh, Hollywood and the Comedy Store as good as they did at the Comedy Store. They really weren't a television-friendly act because they did do ethnic stereotypes that were sort of designed to please the audiences in like hard rabble mining towns in Nevada or working-class taverns in South Dakota. A different sensibility than Hollywood. So um, they didn't really find success there. But once they got hired to open for the Oak Ridge Boys, it led to all these other gigs opening for Tammy Wynette, Merle mm-hmm. Haggard, Willie Nelson, every country music star you could name. And once they got into uh, that universe, um, right around the same time, a television network was being developed for cable. This is still the early years of cable TV. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a channel they created not that they created, that was created, called TNN, the National Network. Sure, yeah. And their agent said, if you guys move here to Nashville, we could get you all over TNN because they need comedians, you know, for this new TV channel. So that's what they did. They moved to Nashville, and they became regulars on a number of different TNN shows, the Ralph Emery show, which was like a country music version of uh, Johnny Carson. It was like mm-hmm. a late night talk show, but just country music, and they'd have comedians. Willie Tyler and Lester were regulars on that show for some reason. 
Uh, Gary Mule Deer was a regular on that show for some reason. And Williams and Ree were regulars on that show. And then they got hired um, to appear on the revamp. The TNN relaunched a, a new version of Hee Haw. Right. It was the last two years of Hee Haw, I think. And they were trying to like hip it up because it had been on the air for years. Mm-hmm. And people weren't watching it anymore. And so if you remember Hee Haw... It was like a ripoff of Laugh-In, but instead, yeah. of a, instead of a joke wall where they did one-liners, they had a cornfield where they did one-liners. Well, in order to engage a new, younger audience for the new version of Hee Haw, in which they hired Williams and Ree as cast members, they got rid of the cornfield and replaced it with a shopping mall bench. And they thought, this will bring the young teenagers to watch Hee Haw because it's set at a shopping mall. <laughs> Holy shit. So they had Grandpa Jones and, and, and George Lindsay singing, sitting on the bench and they would do their one-liners like they used to do in the cornfield. Yeah. Anyways, that's the version of Hee Haw that Williams and Ree joined and Terry Ree became the first and last uh, Native American uh, uh, cast member of Hee Haw. Holy shit. If, also, if you guys want to hear a story about George Lindsay's testicles, um, there's one in this book. I feel like it's, it's a good uh, endorsement of... Yes, the name of the book is We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, mm-hmm. The Unheralded Story of Native Americans and Comedy by Cliff Nestroff, also the author of The Comedians, available now from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simon & Schuster in hardcover, Kindle, and Audible. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you read it, or does uh, the deceased George Lindsay read it? Oh, the audiobook, I read it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good. Although, you know, I wanted to hire like an indigenous narrator. Sure. You know? And then I ran out of money. And then they were like, do you want to do the audio book? We'll pay you, blah, 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 blah. I was like, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Audio there books goes, are a thing, man. Yeah. I was going to have all this artistic integrity and like <laughs> hire an indigenous uh, voice to read it because I felt that would be appropriate. And then sure. uh, realized I couldn't pay the rent in January. So there. That will that happen. Do you, can I tell you, though? I was, uh, if uh, for all their content, uh, Boy, oh boy, if they aren't uh, polished musicians. Uh, their, their harmonies are not bad. I l- oh, yeah. really like the music a lot. Yeah, yeah. Terry Ree is uh, he's got a beautiful singing voice. He can uh-huh. do that high range. Yeah. In fact, I, I, for a second when you said uh-huh, I thought you were doing an impression of him because it was <laughs> very high-pitched uh-huh. It was, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Terry Ree, um, I talk about it in the book, he was very influenced by Buck Owens, mm-hmm. which is a weird coincidence that he then joined Hee Haw, which Buck Owens was one of the hosts with uh, Roy Clark. But uh, in the 60s, he was very much influenced by Buck Owens. That's what a lot of people were because Buck Owens bridged the gap between traditional country music and what they called the Nashville sound, which was the new version of, of country music in the late 60s. It was very controversial. It was a Chet Atkins innovation. And what it was, it brought heavy production values to country music. So it wasn't just the barnyard fiddle anymore. Now there was a string section or a horn section and like lavish overdubs. That was the Nashville sound. And Buck Owens, who had been a traditional uh, uh, Bakersfield sound guy, Bakersfield was a capital for country music because if you've read uh, The Grapes of Wrath, all the Okies settled in Oklahoma and they or sorry settled in um, Bakersfield and they brought their music with them from Oklahoma and so Bakersfield became California's capital of country music and people that came out of there included Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, a guy named Red Simpson who was known for doing truck driving music, 
um, uh, Bob, Bob Willis and his Texas uh, uh, swing, Texas Playboys settled in Bakersfield. And there were all these honky-tonks in a row. Anyways, Buck Owens had that traditional background of the Oklahoma sound, but he also was very much a virtuoso on the electric guitar. And so he was one of the people that brought country music into the sort of the pop field. Country in the late 60s had this huge uh, national, it was no longer niche. Country music, which they had called hillbilly music previously, was very niche for many, many years. By the late 60s, it was now on the pop charts, not just the country charts. And Buck Owens had a lot to do with that. So he was a big influence on a lot of people in the late 60s, especially guitar players. So was Roy Clark, by the way, who was a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. And Terry Ree, if you listen to his guitar playing, it sounds like Buck Owens. Williams and Ree would do straight songs in their act sometimes, just like the Smothers Brothers would, Mm -hmm. and uh, did a lot of Buck Owens numbers. And when you listen to their harmonies, and you're right, they really do know how to harmonize. Um, It's Terry Ree singing those sort of Buck Owens harmonies. And um, if you... Listen to Buck Owens or a Buck Owens fan. You'll, the, the, the influence is evident when you listen to, to Williams and Ree. Do you know, uh, this strikes me as an act. Williams and Ree strike me as an act who must have done very well on, it's not a circuit exactly, but it's, there is just, there's a whole subsection of comedy trucker comedy which is comedy that appeals to truckers or is about trucking is you know somebody plays a trucker it's a it is uh, they seem like they would fall in but i can't imagine a lot of native acts falling into that same category or am i wrong do you know well i can't speak to whether native acts fall into that category every native act is different sure right so there might be some that would or some that wouldn't and and really that genre of so-called truck driving comedy is really just gene tracy i don't know who else (laughs) falls into that category this guy gene tracy was maybe jerry clower uh these guys were well known um but that was real strategic on gene tracy's part so his records would have the word trucking or trucker in the title and then they would sell those records at truck stops. They weren't records. They were A-track H- tapes for sure yeah. for the truck driver to listen to in their rig. Um, I don't know if it's still a thing, but I remember hitchhiking uh, across the country in 1998. The summer of 98, I went from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean and back. And I remember when I got to eastern Canada, New Brunswick, there's a chain there called Irving uh, uh, Truck Stops. And they had these little kiosks that, like, you would spin around that had cassette tapes, like a vending machine, and you could buy sure. a cassette tape. And they were all sort of, like, geared to what truckers would like. And none of it really had anything to do with trucking. It was sure just enough. random. But at every truck stop, it would be the same collection of cassettes. So whoever was in charge of marketing just decided this is what's going to go to the trucking uh, contingent. There was mm-hmm. a genre of country music in the late 60s of trucking music. Dave Dudley, Red Sovine, Red Simpson, and then a bunch of other people who were not known for so-called trucking music who did one album with a picture of them like behind a big rig, mm-hmm. and they would do a cover of Dave Dudley, Truck Driving Son of a Gun. Sure. So presumably Gene Tracy, the comedian, was cashing in on that but you would you unless you you know otherwise like who else would you consider a a truck driving uh, comedian who else belongs to that genre other than Jerry Clower or Gene Tracy? I very specifically think of country 
comedy uh you know so not specifically truck driving but definitely with an appeal i know that going to truck stops in the 90s and stuff i would see you know your jeff fox or the all your blue collar comedy tour guys uh there's also hold on i i feel bad because i interviewed his son this is a record that uh cletus maggard and <laughs> it's a one record uh thing uh-huh. yeah novelty absolutely novelty but it is the same dude in 10 12 different outfits again in front of a semi and all of the all of the uh, music is uh, you know what you would expect it's it's cb comedy quote unquote C- cb music cb comedy it's well, I I don't moment. even th- yeah I don't think they were really a stu- I don't think it was really a genre of comedy. It was just a trend in popular culture. Mm-hmm. So you had Smokey and the Bandit, you had mm-hmm. BJ and the Bear. There was a great Claude Aikens series. When I say great, I mean entertaining. Mm-hmm. Called mm-hmm. Moving On and had a theme song by Merle Haggard. And um, it was it was a trend. The trucking truck driving country music trend started in the mid to late 60s mm-hmm. and then the cb radio craze started in the late 70s and then you had cb related songs cb related cartoons there was a Hanna barbera cartoon i think called cb bears mm-hmm. um you know this is all trash and mm-hmm. there's some movies white line fever starring jan michael vincent and um oh a number of of different things you know it was it was a trend in in show business um you know the idea that jeff foxworthy has anything to do with country music or truck driving is absurd. And the yep. fact that all you had to do to be defined as country is have a southern accent yep. is bizarre because uh, that blue-collar comedy tour, those guys could play any venue, do any comedy club in the north or in any country, and sure. it would be the s- same thing, but it's a marketing ploy. You mm-hmm. know, the, you, you sound like this guy... So watch this guy who has an accent, you know, mm-hmm. like you really has nothing to do with the, the material necessarily. Sure. Oh, no, that's absolutely true. I, I, I guess maybe I am just curious then about the marketing part of it. Maybe that, that could be what, uh, what, you know, yeah, even uh, Vaughn Meter did a, I don't think he ever released it, but he, re- he, he did himself put together a CB song as well, a novelty CB song. I don't think he released it. I'd have to you, you know who's a huge Vaughn Meter uh, fan? I had the chance to, uh, it was a brief 15-minute maybe conversation in the makeup room. We were passing mm-hmm. each other. I was having my makeup put on. He was having his makeup taken off. But you know who's a huge Von Meter obsessive? Hmm. Tom Hanks. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Okay. Yeah. You had a feeling I was going to say Tom Hanks? Yeah, because his widow told me that he bought the rights to his his story years ago, and I think maybe has kept renewing the rights, but has never done well, anything with the his, Von Meter story. His widow? Yes, Von Meter's widow. No. Oh, I think not, Tom Hanks. <laughs> no, no, not Rita Wilson. Not sorry, I didn't want to shock you and make you think Tom Hanks had just died. No, uh, Von Meter's widow told oh. me yeah that Tom Hanks had bought the rights Boy, to Von's you th- story you th- for a while. You, you threw me off. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. word choice, Jason. Word choice. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't know if he still owns the rights or not. I don't know who could play Von Meter. I don't. It'd be a weird story because. Uh, if you listen to her talk about it, it sounds like Von Meter was kind of a monster. She doesn't even realize it, but it kind of sounds like Von Meter was a bit of a monster at the end of the day. Not a well, good I, dude. Oh, really? I, well, I know nothing about uh, <laughs> nothing about that. Yeah. Uh, interesting story. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's... Uh, do you... <laughs> Have you how many how many records have you listened to? Did you listen to any records in prep for this book? Did you listen to everybody's material or watch everyone's material? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I was familiar with people's uh, act for the most part. The mm-hmm. only person whose act I never saw, uh, he's more of a comedy writer than mm-hmm. a performer, is a guy named Joey Clift. Um, I never saw his act. He produced two shows at UCB that were all Native-themed. Okay. Uh, uh, two different years. But I was out of town both times, and I missed it both times. So I haven't actually seen him perform. But most of the comedians that are in the book, I I went and saw in person if I could. Um, there was a series of stand-up specials being taped out in San Bernardino. I took the train out there uh, six weeks in a row to see six different tapings. And I flew to Oregon to see a sketch troupe called the 1491s do a show. That was fantastic. And then, you know, clips here and there or whatever. Um, the one record I sent a link to you uh, mm-hmm. that's out there came out about 12, 13 years ago. It's called the Pow Wow Comedy Jam. Yeah. And again, it was an, an album that was sold at the live shows. Um, these three dudes used to tour together, sometimes four. Um, Mark Yaffe, uh, J.R. Redwater, Jim Rule, and Von Eaglebear. And the clip mm. I sent you was this guy, Von Eaglebear, who's uh, Yakima from uh, Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. And his stand-up is really funny, I think. It's it's very much... I mean, it's my type of comedy. Like mm-hmm. I said, Will, Williams and Ree aren't for me. Von Eaglebear is for me. Yeah. So we all have our own tastes and favorites. And I just love playful, jokey jokes like Stephen Wright, Emo Phillips, Mitch Hedberg. There's a modern comedian who's done Conan a couple times called Matt Donaher. Yep. And uh, and that's I just love that. That's to me is I love comedy that's playful and just pure joy. Just a, a stupid joke, or maybe it's a smart joke, but just a short joke, a non sequitur. Dimitri Martin, mm-hmm. Zach Galifianakis when he does stand up, oh, yeah. uh, Rodney Dangerfield. I love that style of comedy. That's my favorite. And so Von Eaglebear does the same style. It's all short joke jokes and. Most of it is sort of indigenous themed. And he toured for a long time with his group, the Pow Wow Comedy Jam. They did casinos um, around North America. And so there's this CD they put out called Pow Wow Comedy Jam. And you can go on YouTube and listen to uh, Von Eaglebear's um, set, which is like 15 minutes. I recommend it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one. I never saw him perform live, but I heard that. That was a, one of the few comedy records that I listened to while I was... Uh, researching the book i think i even quote from that record in the in the in the book that's fantastic do you do you what was maybe the biggest revelation in in doing the research it sounds like you knew a ton about it already but you need to get it down on paper you need to get a lot of details there and obviously a ton of this shit surprised me and kind of blew me away and i liked reading very much about uh, how how williams and re just had this sort of typical trajectory for american comedians but i'd still never heard of them uh, was there anything that really surprised you? Yeah, I mean, all of it. The great thing about writing a book or being a uh, quote-unquote expert mm-hmm. is that people assume that you know everything already. Sure. When the reality is you researched it yourself like an hour earlier mm-hmm. and then now are talking like you've known about it all along. So you say that it sounds like I knew a lot about it already. I didn't know anything that I wrote about in this book already. Okay. I had to, it was all brand new to me for the most part. You know, I had, like I say, informed by my own 
um, surroundings in Canada, you know, and moving to the States. Not that that makes me any more informed, but it gives me a perspective of here's what it looks like when indigenous people have representation in media. Here's what it looks like when they do not, you know, Mm -hmm. going from Canada to America. And Canada has been very poor to its uh, First Nations peoples uh, over the course of history. They've been horrific, genocidal. So can't pretend that Canada is somehow superior, but in terms of um, sovereignty and awareness and indigenous empowerment, things are a little bit further ahead in Canada than they are in the United States, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of, that point of view was already there for me. But the actual knowledge of what I ended up writing about and now presenting to the readership was pretty much all new. In terms of what was the most surprising, there's a story in the book. I talk a lot about Will Rogers, mm-hmm. and uh, I heard Katie talking about Will Rogers on your show. Um, he has always been sold to us as this figure that was beloved by all. Mm-hmm. And the the all-American down home mm-hmm. simple american the simple oklahoma cowboy never met a man he didn't like ba 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 you know he's just treated mm-hmm. like this deity that most of us today know nothing about right so all we learn is this sort of propaganda version he's native american you would think that would be the very first thing mm-hmm. that would be mentioned when people mention will rogers that he's this major indigenous star in an era when there was no such thing. Today, there's still barely such a thing as a major indigenous star in the United States. So the fact that he was that influential and that famous, so famous that today we still know his name. Yeah, There's hospitals and museums and parks and highways that still bear his name, Will Rogers. Um, But we don't know that he's Native American. Like, that's astounding to me. So I dove into the history of Will Rogers and his indigenous background and kind of tried to reframe him as a more complicated figure than is sold to us. Because they always use that word simple when describing Will Rogers. Here's sure. a guy who is Native American in the 1800s and then becomes one of the most influential voices in the world. Mm-hmm. How is any part of that equation simple? It's like so complicated. Yeah. Such a complex person and figure and circumstance. So I knew that this version of Will Rogers that I'd heard about could not be the whole story any Mm -hmm. more than George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and not being able to tell a lie is the full story of George Washington. (laughs) So, um, so everything I learned about Will Rogers was pretty surprising. And I was framing him as this sort of important figure in modern, quote-unquote, modern Native American history. The surprising part was that about two-thirds of the way through building up his story, I found out about this insane controversy he was involved with one year before his death that was so insane that I had to have conversations with my editor about it where he was like, are you sure you want to include... (laughs) Oh, shit, okay. Are you sure you want to include this story? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I do, because like it's so timely and nobody knows about it. He goes, mm-hmm. yeah, but it sort of like undercuts your whole premise because you're building him up as this heroic figure. Mm-hmm. And then you tell this story, which is going to undercut it. I said, yeah, sure. let's put it in there anyways. So yeah. the, the story is 
Will Rogers at the height of his fame. He's a uh, top five box office star under contract to Fox making movies for John Ford. He's uh, got a widely syndicated newspaper column five days a week. It's read in over 800 papers. I think at its height, maybe even over 2,000 newspapers around the world at its height. Um, you know, he's a well-known Broadway fixture. Everybody knows the name Will Rogers, blah, 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 blah. And he's under contract to the Shell Oil Company to do three radio shows on network radio. And that record that Katie shared with you on your show is derived from these radio broadcasts he did for Shell Oil. He did three different shows, mm-hmm. one, one called the Shell Chateau and I forget the other two, but they're all shell something something. On one of those broadcasts, 1934, January, he is introducing a Western song, uh, I think called The Roundup, the something roundup. It was like a cowboy song. Mm -hmm. He plays the song, and then Will Rogers says, it might be a cowboy song, but it's really just an N-word spiritual to me. Now, I'm cleaning it up. I'm Uh saying Uh an hyphen word, but he said the word. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people heard that and they're like, wait, excuse me? Did did he just say that? And some people, you know, it was on the radio. It just goes by in a a blip. So you think, well, maybe I misheard or maybe he misspoke. Sure. Just in case you thought that was the case, he repeats himself and uses the N-word three more times. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh so it turns into this huge controversy. The 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 switchboard lights up. Mm-hmm. NBC is in trouble. Shell Oil is like, what what's up? You know, even in 1934, you could not say that word. Yeah, that's, on the yeah. on the radio, certainly not on the radio. And even that early on, all the networks already had a list of um, taboos, and one mm-hmm. of them was racial slurs. Okay. Specific, specifically that racial slur. So you could say, oh, it was the era, but it wasn't. Nobody else was going on the radio and using the N-word unless it was like a local Ku Klux Klan broadcast in Memphis. Sure, sure. This was national coast-to-coast NBC radio sponsored by Shell Oil starring the most famous person in America, Will Rogers. So he uses the N-word three times, maybe four times on this broadcast. And Shell Oil goes into damage control. They said, you got to go on the air next week. And apologize because we're getting a lot of heat from the NAACP and there was a letter writing campaign and a bunch of editorials in the black press, the major African-American newspapers of the era, the New York Age, the New York Amsterdam News, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender. These are the leading uh, black newspapers. They all talked about it and said this was an insult Mm -hmm. to black people everywhere. How dare Will Rogers? He better apologize. So he comes on the air the next week on the Shell Chateau or whatever the Shell-sponsored radio show was. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you people who got upset are making entirely too much out of this. Uh, you got to look at the intent behind the words. I meant no harm by using the N-word. I've never had any prejudice because I was raised by darkies. Oh, boy. That's what he said. Oh, shit. To make up for it. <laughs> oh, boy. Will, will, will. <laughs> so then... So then Shell Oil was like, what are you doing? <laughs> People are going to boycott our product. What are Ooh, you doing? That's God. not what we asked you to do. You got to apologize, not make it worse. 
And so then when he said that, it did make things worse. Mm-hmm. And a major boycott campaign was organized in New York uh, pleading with all black people to boycott, boycott all Shell gas stations, wow. all Shell oil products, to boycott all Will Rogers movies screening in Fox theaters. And the boycott also succeeded in having multiple theaters in black neighborhoods, Harlem in particular, canceling all screenings of Will Rogers films. They were pulled from theaters. And these were like major movies that people were lining up to see. And one of the editorial writers in the New York Age said, now, if we don't get an apology uh, now, the next step is to further the boycott to... Uh, all Fox films. So that would include all the Shirley Temple movies. Uh Any Fox film must be boycotted, right? So that was the next phase. And there's a real harsh editorial, which I did quote in the book. I actually had trepidation about quoting it. I was like, should I quote this? I don't really want the Mm N-word in my book. And Mm -hmm. I definitely don't want to have to type it. But it appeared in this editorial in a black newspaper, The New York Age, in 1934. And because it was um, not ellipsed in the original, and I think the reason they didn't put N hyphen word in the newspaper itself was because they wanted to have the impact. Sure. Um, A black editorial writer wrote at the end of his screed about how we have to boycott Fox films. He said, we are N-words to Will Rogers. And he put N-word in like capital. Mm Mm-hmm. We we he either said we are or we might be. I can't. We might be n words to Will Rogers, and then he put this operative word in caps. But he is trash to us. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the thing. And then the white press didn't really pay much attention to this, but it was heavily covered in the black press. And then um, not barely a year later, maybe it was 14 months later, he dies in a fiery plane crash. Mm -hmm. And this controversy is completely erased from the history books and never mentioned again. So you would think that, again, Will Rogers, this very famous name that we still know the name of, if not about him, you would think that a man mentioned so often that you would know immediately that he's Native American and -hmm. that you would know immediately that he was embroiled in this N-word controversy. And yet, both of those things seem to be missing from most books about Will Rogers. So those are some of the things, I guess, to answer your question. What surprised uh-huh. me the most? Yeah, that's... Uh, holy shit, man. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that part of the book. Um, wow. That's... Uh, freaking, you know, that was one of those things when Katie brought that record up. Uh, I was like, well, I should probably dig in because I think I know him, but I only know him on the surface and obviously only dug so much. But uh, having had no idea that he was Native American, I was just like, what the fuck? Why did no one tell me this? Why was this never an issue? Why yeah, was this- and the weird thing is there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of books about Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a book just about him and the plane crash and there's a book wow. just just about him in vaudeville and there's a book just about him on broadway and a book written by his wife and a book written by his screenwriter and a book written by his friend and you know all these different books about will rogers one just about political humor one just about you know and very few of them mention any of his indigenous background you know they really it's all surface level they all just rely mm-hmm. on that same conceit the simple homespun all American, blah, 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 blah. They just kind of gloss over um, the brass tacks. There's, a, there's one fantastic book about him, if you do read a book about him other than 
what I've written, mm-hmm. um, just called Will Rogers: A Biography mm-hmm. by Ben by Ben Yagoda. It's okay. from the from the nineties, and that does include a lot of this information, okay. and it is an excellent excellent book, and it does not. Um, simplify him. There's a lot more nuance to that book. And you learn about uh, the history of his father and his grandfather. His grandfather was murdered in a vengeance killing. And then his father was not murdered, but he himself had two people murdered. Like, it's just a really interesting uh, family tree. Um, But that book, uh, Will Rogers, a biography by Ben Yagoda, is worth reading, and then the other hundred books about Will Rogers that I flipped through in the research are not worth reading at all. That's fair enough. Yeah, I think the one I have is like entitled Will Rogers, an autobiography, and I haven't read through it because I just know that it's just going to be what a bunch of fun quotes from this guy that we're not going to dig into at all. Yeah, it's called the not. Yeah, that book. I like that book, but the weird mm-hmm. thing about that book is that it's not his autobiography. Like he didn't right. write it. It's a compendium of stuff categorized in different thematically mm-hmm. from his newspaper columns. So these okay. two editors took stuff out of his newspaper columns and arranged it by category and then uh, published it as Will Rogers' an Autobiography. And I think at one point there was like a lawsuit over that book because it was misrepresenting what it was. Mm-hmm. And then there was also an accusation. It's actually not a bad book, but okay. I'd also heard accusations uh, to the effect that there's quotes in that book that he did not say. <laughs> oh, boy. That's, but there's uh, a lot there's a lot of confusion around Will Rogers because they mm-hmm. did sort of rebrand who he was in the year 1952. I don't go into this into the in the book because it's too off the track, but uh-huh. Will Rogers, they made a movie about him in 1952 long after he died, which right. stars his son, Will Rogers Jr. Uh-huh. Warner Brothers put it out. It's called The Will Rogers Story. And in conjunction with the movie to promote it, they put out all this extra Will Rogers stuff and there was sort of like a Will Rogers resurgence in the 1950s and if you pay attention to what was happening in 1952 this is the time that One Nation Under God and In God We Trust is added to all the money and added and it's also when the Pledge of Allegiance becomes compulsory in Mm -hmm. elementary schools so there was this sort of shift towards this God and country model Instead of the separation of church and state, this was the first era in which Billy Graham starts visiting the White House and leading prayers on the White House lawn. There was this this sort of piety, um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Boom. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever used that phrase before? A piety, but I like it. A piety boom Mm -hmm. in the 1950s as a counteraction to the boogeyman known as godless communism. Sure. So suddenly everything in America became very godly. And so the Will Rogers story comes out in 1952, and they dedicate a park to him in Beverly Hills called Will Rogers Park. They dedicate uh, Route 66 to him and rename it the Will Rogers Highway. And the Postal Service puts out a commemorative stamp, a Will Rogers stamp. And on that stamp, they used a quote from an old newspaper column But the whole quote was too long, so they lobbed off the beginning and they lobbed off the end. And the quote that's on the stamp became the most famous thing that Will Rogers ever said, Mm -hmm. which was, never met a man I didn't like. And the reason that phrase is famous today is not because it gained traction when he wrote it in the 20s, but because it was on that stamp in 1952. Mm -hmm. So Will Rogers 
there was a resurgence. There was a comedian in the 50s named Herb Schreiner mm-hmm. who was from Indiana. And he, was, he had the same delivery and tone and style as Will Rogers. There was another guy named Bob Lewis who you can see YouTube clips of on Ed Sullivan. Same thing. They did this sort of self-effacing, aw shucks, kind of looking at their shoes while they mm-hmm. did, their, did their jokes type of performance. All uh, uh, sort of inspired by Will Rogers and this Will Rogers resurgence. And then... Not to make this story so long, but in the late 60s, um, James Whitmore, the actor, did a one-man show. Mm-hmm. It was inspired by the su- success of Hal Holbrook, who had done a one-man show as Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. James Whitmore did a one-man show as Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. And he was going to play Will Rogers and like talk like Will Rogers and deliver the material that Will Rogers had done in the 20s and 30s. During the tryouts of this one-man show, they found that the material that was supposed to be so funny wasn't landing. The audience was not resonating. It just didn't resonate with the audience, this this material that Will Rogers had done. So James Whitmore and the people involved in the production punched it up. And there's a bunch of stuff in there that got laughs when James Whitmore delivered it as Will Rogers in his one-man show, Mm -hmm. which Will Rogers never said. So today, when you Google famous quotes from Will Rogers, a lot of the quotes are actually James Whitmore as Will Rogers on Broadway quotes, but not things that Will Rogers ever said. Probably Probably the most famous of which is, we have the best Congress money can buy. That's mm-hmm. something that Will Rogers never said, but James Whitmore as Will Rogers in the one-man show in the late 60s did say. So anyways, the whole history of Will Rogers is anything but simple. I'd like to use that show to tie back to your first appearance on this show, which is uh, one person who claimed to have uh, been screwed out of playing Will Rogers in that show was Dick Davey. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, his widow told me he was really pissed that he didn't get to play somebody. Who was it? We looked it up, and it was Will Rogers in exactly that show. That's amazing that... Just to rewrite someone's entire history to serve the audience. I get why you do it. You, money's been invested in this show, but it's so dis, dishonest. Well, I mean, that's that's still... Uh, that, that's show business, though. That's, uh, yeah. Isn't there a show that's... Nom- or a movie that's nominated for an Oscar in which Malcolm X meets with Sam Cooke, meets with... Right? It's like all the famous black celebrities meeting in a hotel room that they never actually mm-hmm. met. It's all fictional dialogue. But, right. I mean... So what? I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. it has a has an ending that is not the real ending of what happened in real life, and so what? You know, <laughs> showbiz is show business. I I don't really. I always find it weird when people complain about a biopic mm-hmm. that isn't true to true to right. reality. Like, of course it's not. It's only two hours long. Uh-huh. The person's life was fifty years. So what do you? <laughs> of course it's not exactly as it happened. That's show business. You don't want to. You don't want it to be boring, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> Just when it obviously in a time where information was was less valued, uh, I- 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 less of a commodity as it is now, it's interesting how much of that then leaches out there as oh no, well he must have said it. Well, you it's because you took their word for it. That's interesting. That's fascinating to me. Um, I would like okay, so you do not have to, uh, but why recommend some these Williams and Re albums to people? Well, first of all, you got to put a photo up on your podcast Mm -hmm. page of the first record. Oh, yeah. Buck Fuffalo. Mm -hmm. 
because they apparently had a bad gig in Buffalo. And so obviously the play on words, fuck Buffalo, it's called Buck Fuffalo. Mm-hmm. And the, the cover has the most sort of like 70s family restaurant font Mm-hmm. as the title and then the photo of them with these long like 70s collars showing a little bit of chest hair you know just looking very much the lounge act that they were mm-hmm. if, if 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 you found this in a thrift store for 50 cents and don't buy it for 50 cents yeah i mean how square are you Agreed. not to see the incredible camp value in this cover you like you're your interest would be immediately piqued if you saw this record. You wouldn't know immediately that it's a comedy record, Mm-mm. but the title alone, Buck Fuffalo, come on, we could admit that's <laughs> funny. And the image of them on the cover is enough to uh-huh. sell you. And, uh, I mean, that's it. That's it. You know, and, and, and apparently they had to pull every copy. Uh, they sold this for a very brief amount of time, but they had plugged it, their recording machine into their own amplifier Mm-hmm. And then when it was released, I guess you couldn't hear it very well. <laughs> so most of the audio is muffled. Jesus Christ. And they sold it at their shows, but pretty quickly they had to do a new album because nobody could hear what they were saying on this one. I'm gonna, uh, I can't wait to get a copy of this. I cannot he- wait. They have fake <laughs> quotes on the back from Charles Manson and Bertrand Russell and David Berkowitz, uh, Ed McMahon. A bunch of fake quotes on the back. It's all handwritten. Holy shit. Yeah, no, I mean, come on. Agreed. Yeah. It's an it's an experiment. If nothing else, it's it just just grab. It's cheap. I'll tell you, you can get it for ten bucks on Discogs. I don't know if it's worth ten bucks, but that's what's oh, going to happen. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And and really, I got to say, I interviewed Terry Ree from mm-hmm. Williams and Ree for the book, and uh, very generous with his time. Great guy, mm-hmm. really sweet guy. Very talented man. Very smart. Um, you know, like I said, they have great chemistry. They do a cheesy act, mm-hmm. I guess you would say. You mm-hmm. know, it's kind of a corny act. Um, and again, some of the material will make you cringe, especially if you're a younger person. For sure. Um, and so it's not an endorsement of any of that. And Right. But at the same time, uh, just interesting. You know, it's an interesting act. Any way you look at it, whether you find them hilarious, mm-hmm. whether you find them horrendous, <laughs> whether you find them smart, whether you find them corny... I find them interesting. And to oh, me, that is all that matters, really, when I write about anybody. It's not that they're my favorite comedian or my least favorite comedian. It's that their story is interesting. And if their story is boring, then I don't care. So Will Rogers, same thing, really. Mm-hmm. How, how hard is Will Rogers going to make you laugh in the year 2021? Probably mm-hmm. not at all. No. But his backstory, his trajectory, um, quite compelling. And so Williams and Reed, their story, uh, very, very interesting to me. It's fucking fascinating. And the, the behind the scenes of the very specific things that you're talking about are, are great. And uh, just hearing him call what's his name uh, who worked for The Tonight Show and Alcoholic was uh, pretty great. Um, I mean, just... Jim, Jim McCauley. Thank yeah. you. There we go. There, there's the name. I honestly... There's also one other thing, and this is just by way of context and not to justify the use of any of the, the ethnic comedy, whatever. It's their thing. Every every comedy album that I own from a certain period during that, especially, you know, from the 50s up to the 70s and 80s that has terrible ethnic humor that I hate, it's all being delivered exclusively by a single white man. Um, at the very least, this is interesting because one of the gentlemen is uh, the furthest thing from that. And, you know, and it is this mutual agreement that these two guys are going to do this thing. And it's 
again, interesting. And I, that's why I've, I'm so fascinated with this pair. Now. Right. He's, he's Native American, and yet in the act, there's sort of anti Native American stereotypes sure. that are yeah. d- delivered throughout it. And uh, that in itself is controversial, especially mm-hmm. in indigenous communities. It's like, what kind of a message? Are you sending yeah. to not to non-natives that it's okay to use these slurs? Because you know, there's a joke on the LP um, that uh, something to the effect of, "I won't even give the punchline. I'll just give you the setup." The setup is, uh, "What do you call an Indian with a IQ of a hundred? Okay, oh, right. yeah. So it's like a racist street joke mm-hmm. de- delivered by an act that is one Native American dude and one white dude. Okay. Now, is it okay the performer on stage is Native American? But you know full well that performing as the opening act for the Oak Ridge Boys, Mm -hmm. there's an audience there full of white people that will remember that joke and then repeat it to their white friends later, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the the sort of caveat. Like, what kind of harm could you potentially be doing? Are you giving license... To these white people then to repeat a racist joke among themselves and perpetuate those same racist stereotypes. And does that also give them the justification? Oh, well, I heard it from an act that's Native American, so it's okay. It's like the old debate about the football mascot. You know, people, white people, well, I'm one 36th Cherokee and I'm not offended. It's like, no, you're not. If you're not part of that community uh-huh. then you don't really have a say in the matter so anyways there's all kinds of complicated yeah. things floating around williams and ray which is another reason that i find them uh interesting and ripe for my uh, uh completely irrelevant study yeah you've just le- legitimately given me the first time to actually have complicated feelings about this type of material so that's why i'm i'm glad you introduced me to them like it's never ever complicated before then before this i love it I, I i'm interested in it well the other thing is it it never used to be complicated for them for sure and ju- you know in, in their t- second decade in show business it was fine but by their fifth decade in show business uh, for a huge swath of the population mm-hmm. because their audience williams and rear you know, around 70 years old now, mm-hmm. um, their audience is around the same age. So yeah. audiences are only going to be younger, which means their material is only going to be more rejected. And I find that evolution or progression or whatever it is quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is great. People, please pick up the book. It's entitled We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy by a gentleman, a Canadian, Cliff Nesteroff. Neither of those are mutually exclusive things. I just want to make sure people know you're a gentleman and you're Canadian. Well, I like the gentleman part. You don't have to push the Canadian part. (laughs) Last time you were on, did we talk Canadian content regulations at all? Because I feel like I'd be neglecting my show if I didn't ask you your thoughts on it. Well, it's been defanged. So I don't know how new your your information is, but the Mm -mm. Canadian... Canadian content regulations today are not as strict as they were 20 years ago. They um, changed them uh, drastically when Stephen Harper was the prime minister. And Stephen Harper was uh, uh, the most American of Canadian prime ministers in recent Mm -hmm. memory. He was the guy that before he was prime minister, he was head of the leader of the opposition. Mm -hmm. And in 2003, he wrote an open letter to the Wall Street Journal on behalf of all Canadians, apologizing because then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien 
did not join the United States in the invasion of Iraq, in the Iraq war. Wow. So, he, so he apologized. On behalf of all Canadians, we should have gone to Iraq. In 2003, he wrote that editorial. And then I guess two years later, three years later, he was elected prime minister of Canada. So he was very American in his sensibility about deregulation, yeah. privatization, opening things up for American corporations to come and invest. And that's when... Uh, the, the tar sands oil boom happened in Alberta. Um, I don't know if you're aware, the largest oil field on earth is in uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was it was developed times a thousand under Prime Minister Harper because they removed a lot of environmental regulations. Mm. And the, the Koch brothers, who are famous in America, um, their largest investments were in, in those oil fields in northern Alberta, thanks to Prime Minister Harper. So... In that same realm, he fought to remove those Canadian content regulations, which were instated in the 1960s to stop Canadian television and radio from becoming too Americanized and to hopefully build up a Canadian show business infrastructure. Unfortunately, I don't know who was in charge of the playlists, but there was an awful lot of Canadian music and performance that never was broadcast mm. that you could still find like cool old records from the 60s where you're like wow this is Canadian what a great song mm-hmm. never got any radio play but then there's other shit you know the Avril Lavigne's and the Nickelback's and the Brian Adams and the Corey Hart's <laughs> who are like non-stop exposure their own TV special their own Christmas special their own you know 12 times a day the same song on the radio yeah um, so in theory Canadian content was well-meaning but in execution, I think they had some old fuddy-duddy curating what got uh, played and not. You know, Wayne and Schuster. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had any of their comedy records on your show, but uh, Wayne and Schuster were like Canada's only comedians. For, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they weren't. There was like all these other comedians. They were the only comedians allowed on TV for like 30 years. Funny. The, the taxpayer <laughs> subsidized this fucking shit comedy team, which I, I loved them when I was four. Sure. But by the time I was 15, I was like, oh, okay. So I think people weren't happy with me for not liking their album that I'm like, this, I like. I guess I get that. I didn't even know they were Canadian when I first dug it out. And like, which, okay. which one? Which one? Do It, Do It, if I remember correctly, is the name of it. Let me look it up. Hold on. I think that's the name. Do of It, Do It. I, I'm pretty sure that's the... Hold on. Let me make sure. It, I could be thinking of a different comedy team, but I know I've heard... Hold on. Give me one second. Uh, 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 uh. They have two records, one called Wayne Schuster Short Subjects and one Wayne Schuster uh, in, live in comedy performance. Again, it comes down to like media propaganda, like Will Rogers is simple. Mm-hmm. Wayne, Wayne and Schuster were sold to the public as like highbrow. Like yeah, they're, yeah. More, they're Canadian and more intellectual than the American comedy teams like Allen and Rossi. Okay. And yep. one of the, well, two reasons they were considered quote unquote intellectuals because one of their sketches was about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And then their other sketch was about ancient Rome. And the sketch about ancient Rome has one joke in it that was like the toast of like intellectuals. Oh, my God. But it's a very labored joke. It actually works better on paper than mm-hmm. out loud. But they always inserted this joke. It was like their greatest hit. They did it on Ed Sullivan mul- multiple times. Mm-hmm. So they're in ancient Rome... And there's a private eye 
trying to investigate the the death of Brutus or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know Roman history or Roman. I, I think that's the story, right? And so the guy goes into the to a bar to order a drink, and it's ancient Rome. And he says to the bartender, he says, "I'll have uh, I'll have a Martinez with an olive." And the bartender goes, "A Martinez? You mean martini?" And he goes. If I want to, I'll ask for it. Jesus Christ. So that's the big joke. Instead uh-huh. of Martinez, Martini, if uh-huh. I want want to, I'll ask for it. So that was like their big famous joke. And that joke was like the example that they were like cerebral. Mm-hmm. But And Ed Sullivan loved them. Mm-hmm. He would let the, most comedians have their act cut down to ribbons. You got six minutes, now you have to do three. Mm-hmm. Right before you go on. Wayne and Schuster were the opposite. Ed Sullivan let them do sketches that lasted 15 minutes. And if you think back to the first season of SNL, Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as a good 15-minute sketch. Nope. 15-minute sketch is a too long sketch, no Mm -hmm. matter what. That's too Mm -hmm. long. So uh, that showed. And they never really gained traction in the States, even though they were under contract to CBS and did a uh, Jack Benny summer replacement in 1960 or 61. Interesting. But even if you have a little bit of a uh, success in the States, mm-hmm. you can then go back to Canada and it's like you're a god. Okay. It's like, oh my god, they cracked the, the, the ceiling in America and America liked them, so now we'll give you yeah, your yeah. own TV series for the next 40 years. <laughs> That's remarkable. I'm supposed to be listening. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to keep you, but in terms of Canadian comedy, have you ever heard the Lorne and Hart album? I have a digital copy, but I've not listened to it yet. What are your yeah. thoughts? Is it good? Uh, there's a very racist track on it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I called... Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the track is called. It might just be called, like, The Indian. Aha. Ooh, fun. And, yeah, it's from the late 60s, and as, as has been established in this episode, First Nations issues are front and center in uh, Canada, and mm-hmm. the history and treatment of First Nations peoples in Canada by Canada is comparable to the holocaust in germany and i'm not overstating it mm-hmm. like in canada that's well accepted and there's a uh like a, a national day of mourning in canada now to remember the victims of residential school abuse blah 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 mm-hmm. um so that lauren and hart lp the lauren michaels comedy lp i think it's from 1970 mm-hmm. and it was released internally by the cbc to play on the radio to promote their TV show. It was never released commercially. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. So if you look at the cover of it, the front cover, mm. it is the word ha four times. It says ha, 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 ha. It doesn't even say Lauren and Hart on the front cover. It's like a green and blue cover. And that was the front cover that was generic for all internal CBC okay. comedy releases. And then on the back, there's photos of Lauren Michaels and Hart Pomerantz and the track listings. And so there's this one track, I guess it's called The Indian or something like that. Mm-hmm. The copy that I found was at the Vancouver uh, CBC Radio Record Library. And in those days, they had their entire vinyl library still. They'd been, you know, like a major radio station like the BBC. They received one copy of every record ever released, basically. So they had well yeah, over yeah. 100,000 LPs in this library. Found the Lauren Michaels LP, and on the back it has the track listings, ba 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 da 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 da, and then some disc jockey took a jiffy marker and underlined, you know, which tracks to play. There's an arrow pointing to the one that says the Indian, mm-hmm. and it says, "Do not play on air. Do not play on air." Underline, underline, underline. <laughs> 
So oh, when you li- when you listen to it, it's a lot of ugh, me too, white man. Oh, oh look for you know a lot of that mm-hmm. Western movie uh, stereotypes. So mm. very much of its era. Uh, Lorne Michaels is the straight man in the comedy team, and Hart Pomerantz is the comedian who does all the different characters. And mm-hmm. of course, um, the Wayne and Schuster connection. Uh, Wayne and Schuster are Lorne Michaels' uh, uh, father-in-law. Frank Schuster is the father of Rosie Schuster, who was Mrs. Lorne Michaels and one of the first writers of SNL, Rosie Schuster. So um, he, Frank Schuster from Wayne and Schuster, kind of mentored his son-in-law, Lorne Michaels. And when he had his own CBC variety show, uh, The Heart and Lorne Hour, it was very much the new version, the new generation version of Wayne and Schuster. And Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a... Very important um, connection there in terms of comedy history. And, you know, Lorne Michaels is such a key to the history of Canadian comedy and the history of comedy as a whole now. But his lineage is connected. His ex-wife is connected. And then all the Canadians that have come since then out of the SNL factory, whether it's Dan Aykroyd or Mike Myers or Phil Hartman or all the people that were inspired by those people who are around today, everybody from... Nathan Fielder to Seth Rogen to Michael Sarah to uh, Samantha B to Anthony Antimic a lot of people that you know Jim Carrey all these people that add up you forget how many Canadians there are mm-hmm. all, all to a degree inspired or informed by the Lorne Michaels connection somewhere in that puzzle so sure. Wayne and Sh- Wayne and Schuster as much as I deride them mm-hmm. are integral to the history of uh, Canadian comedy that's fascinating. All right, I'm going to re-listen just to remember why I didn't like it and uh, be prepared to judge the uh, Hart and Lorne album because holy oh, shit. Norm MacDonald uh, uh-huh. did, did a Netflix uh, series recently or mm-hmm. last year, I guess. Go b- watch, watch some Wayne and Schuster on YouTube. Okay. And then go back and watch his Netflix series or at least the end of each episode. Norm MacDonald, who's Canadian, does a hat tip to Wayne and Schuster at the mm-hmm. end of every episode. Again, it would go over the head of any American. It would hit you right in the face if you're Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, Wayne and Schuster closed every episode with a song that they had written for the song or written for the show while the end credits roll. They'd wear tuxedos. The band would do this walking bass line. And they would go into this thing about, will I see by the clock on the wall? It's time to say to one and all, goodbye, goodbye, farewell, farewell, so long, so long, stay loose, stay loose, adieu, adieu. You know, they would do this back and forth song. Mm-hmm. And Norm MacDonald ends his Netflix show with that same song. At the end of every episode, he goes to the camera and he sings this stupid song while his guest can be seen in the background looking confused and mystified. <laughs> but it's the Wayne and Schuster uh, uh, theme song. Okay. So, so even to this day, Norm MacDonald, a Canadian comedian, is giving a hat tip to that important history of uh, Canadian comedy. Because really, for my entire childhood, mm-hmm. the only comedy you were allowed to watch, the only comedy on Canadian TV was the Wayne and Schuster show. It used to come on right before Hockey Night in Canada, mm-hmm. the number one TV show in the country. Sure. Um, you know, the little comedy variety leading into the Maple Leafs game. So those, those things are like very much part of the Canadian fabric. They're fun to make fun of and they're fun to... Revisit, but because Canadians only had one TV channel, or at the most two, mm-hmm. for decades, 
didn't matter what coast you grew up on, we all collectively grew up with the same sort of visual cues and regional references and, and, and sort of this Canadian shorthand so that if you migrate to Los Angeles, whether you're from Vancouver or whether you're from St. John's, Newfoundland, which are like 4,000, 5,000 miles apart, mm-hmm. you still have this connected um, uh, uh, common language that you understand. Right. That's fascinating. Uh, Cliff, thank you for doing the show, as always. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!